All right, well, I hope everyone is ready for the first Sunday in Advent weirdness. Yeah. Uh, it's always, the first Sunday in Advent is always one where we look at prophetic texts. It's the one where I feel like at some point, uh, those who were arranging the text for the lectionary decided that they needed to just smack us all in the face to remind us that we are not at Christmas yet, all right? Uh, those who put it together wanted to ensure that, the, remind us that this is a season of anticipation of looking forward to something that is yet to arrive. I know the tree is up. I know the lights are on. I know it already has that feel. We sang, O come Emmanuel, right? It's got the Christmas feel to it, but we're not there yet. Uh, and always, this first Sunday, there is a prophetic text that is full of doom and gloom that I don't want to preach uh, because it doesn't feel right in this time of year, right? Instead of mangers and wise men, they choose scripture, uh, particularly this uh, cycle this year, and it's a three-year cycle, uh, in year A, they choose a scripture that has been used to traumatize genera- uh, generations. Um, they choose verses that are later on used by uh, a lot of theologians and writers, uh, including those who came up with the Left Behind series uh, that has the kind of theology that has done what I think untold damage uh, to a lot of people who grew up in church, uh, many of you in this room still have PTSD from rapture dreams and uh, forgetting about time change Sunday and showing up and no one was there and thinking you got left behind and all that good stuff. And so uh, that's where we're at tonight. We're in Matthew chapter 24, verses 36 through 44. Um, it's Advent 1. It is not Christmas, and we will know that quickly. It says this, verses 36 through 44. But about that day and hour, no one knows, neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. For as the days of Noah were, so it will be in the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing until the flood came and swept them all away. So too will be this coming of the Son of Man. Then... Two will be in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding meal together, one will be taken and one will be left. Keep awake, therefore, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The word of God in scripture for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us. Thanks be to God. A little poem I wrote. Towards the first night of Advent and all through the room. The scriptures all read were full of doom and of gloom. The children were graciously ushered away while adults are assaulted with the end of all days. Then what to our suffering ears did we hear but a loud trumpet blast that filled us with fear on pestilence, on hedonists, on flooding and grieving, on gnashing and bashing, on rapture and thieving. You thought that perhaps you might be all right. Happy Advent to all. Good luck sleeping tonight. (laughs) This is yet another text that I feel like I can't start teaching on uh, unless I start by telling you what it's not saying. Again, so many of us have the theological baggage of our youth pop up in texts like this, particularly this one in itself. I remember seeing all kinds of terrible movies and terrible adaptations of movies where 
just piles of clothes were left behind and people were left behind and all that stuff. I don't know why you go to heaven naked, but it happened in all the movies. And I'm not going to take a deep dive into the dispensational rapture theology that popped up relatively recently in Christian history, yet has somehow come to be assumed as the right way to read Scripture, uh, even though it was not historically uh, the way it was read, nor should it be. But allow me to start tonight, before we get into it, by saying that, uh, in my opinion, this text has nothing to do with what you read in those left-behind books, or even worse, if you were subjected to the movies made from those books. If you've never seen the movies, honestly, you probably should. They're, they're, they're great in all the wrong ways. They're pretty awful, but they're kind of fun. And I'm going to give you at least two quick reasons to start with, and then we'll get into it. I'm going to give you at least two quick reasons why this is not meant to describe a rapture event, and it's not meant to give you any kind of secret knowledge as to what will happen at the end of times. First, how I know that this is not meant to give you secret knowledge about how things will happen at the end of times is it's really easy with this scripture because this scripture literally says no one knows when any of this is going to happen. In fact, it says Jesus doesn't know when it's going to happen. That should let you off the hook a little bit. In fact, I would, I would argue that if Jesus doesn't know, perhaps we should stop listening to anyone who acts like they know what Jesus confesses to not be aware of. They may be a very good teacher. My guess is they're not smarter than Jesus. And maybe don't pay attention to a theology that uses the text that is telling us that no one knows as some kind of decoder ring to learn the thing that it says that no one knows. And that sentence is hard to make sense of, let alone the theology that gives birth to it. Secondly, the other argument I would say uh, that for why this has nothing to do with the kind of rapture kind of stuff you have been taught, the whole metaphor that this text uses for Christ's return is Noah and the flood. Right? It'll be like the time of Noah and the flood. There were people who were out there just living their normal lives, and then they got swept away by the floodwaters they didn't even know were coming. Right? Which is a terrible metaphor for the rapture theology we were brought up with. I don't know a ton about worldwide floods, but I think getting swept away by them is bad. I'm going to make that grand statement. Meaning that if Christ's return is like a worldwide flood, then I would like to officially announce my preference to please be totally left behind. I don't want to go. I'd rather stay dry. Being left alone is the best scenario in a worldwide flood. I don't want to be taken by the flood. I don't want to be swept up in the flood. So if you're trying to convince me that being left behind is a bad thing, maybe don't use these verses where it's the best possible outcome. It's almost like that's not what's being said here. So let's try to move ourselves from that baggage. Maybe you don't have that baggage, and I didn't mean to just give it to you. And while these verses certainly have some futuristic tones to them, the point seems pretty clear to me. It's not about mapping out the apocalypse or scaring anyone into hunkering down. In fact, quite the opposite. The point is about readiness. It's about being prepared for what we believe is to come. It's about living today with one day in the front of our minds. Because as much as we like to glamorize the idea of living only in the here and now, only living in the moment, we all know that's no way to actually live. 
it's best to try to be at least periodically prepared for what we know will come later. I was trying to think of one story when I was humbled by the abrupt realization of my own lack of preparation. And it was hard to choose from the long list I came up with. But then I did think of one traumatizing event in particular. Many years ago, uh, a bunch of us in this community, before we had kids and were looking for ways to abuse ourselves, instead of letting our kids do it, uh, someone talked a bunch of us into joining what was called a Spartan race. And we paid money. We signed up for a Spartan race. Now, racing sounds bad enough, but this is one of those races that would thoroughly confuse most of the human beings in all of world's history. You mean that you have all the food and all the shelter you could possibly want. You have everything you need and your family needs, so you want to pay money to someone else to torture and humiliate you in the wilderness. Why would you do that? And this is a question I asked many times of myself that day. At that point in my life, I had been running a little bit. For me, a lot. Not really a lot, but I had been running a good bit. And at, and at that point in my life, I was in as good a shape as I had been. That's a low bar, I admit. But I thought, I'm in good enough shape to do this. People sign up for this all over the country. Certainly, I can do it. I'm prepared for that day. And I was sorely, sorely mistaken. We showed up that day, and it was cold, and I immediately began to regret it based on some of the other people I saw around me that seemed to be superhuman. They started us in different groups, and the first thing we did is they fired off the gun for our, uh, our group. We started to run, and the first thing you had to do was jump over a pit that was on fire. Jump over a fire pit, intentionally jump over a fire pit, and a guy in the front of our group jumped over and immediately broke his ankle on the other side and had to be dragged off the course screaming. That set a good tone for what happened for the next, I don't know, 12 hours, however long it took for me to get through it. Now, yeah, give or take. Now, there were annoying people, like my wife or Aaron Robinson, who had the gall to bounce through the course like a child on a playground, smiling and laughing and being annoyingly merry in this situation. But Jonathan Krebs and I dragged ourselves through this course, angry, mad, discussing what it would be like to never talk to our spouses again between gasps for life. We jumped, through, we jumped over fire, we swam in mud, we climbed walls and ropes, because who doesn't want to revisit the most humiliating part of PE class as a child? We crawled under barbed wire, we threw spears. Yeah, we threw spears for reasons I still haven't figured out. And then we begged for a merciful death when I was introduced that day for the very first time to a thing called burpees, which you had to do 20 of in order to officially finish the race. And which I can say as a pastor with a theological education are born from Satan's own dark heart and should be exercised from God's good world immediately. There are some pictures of me smiling at the end of it, but only, that smile is only what one has when they face any near-death experience and come out on the other side. I was not ready for that world. I knew the race was coming. I signed up for it. I had seen pictures. I knew what was supposed to be happening on that day. I had time to do more than just jog a little bit here and there. But I was not ready for that world. 
I was prepared for the jog a little bit, but mostly sleep in on Saturday, eat junk food, and watch football kind of world. That was the world I lived in. That is the world I was ready for. I was not ready for the run in the cold with pants and shoes full of mud world. Others were ready for that world. Others were excited to finally live in the world that they had been dreaming about because they're psychopaths. I was miserable. I was not ready for that world. Jesus is calling us to preparedness. Jesus wants his followers to be ready for the world that is coming. Not so that we can fight and win. This is not about bunkers and weapons and doomsday preparation at all. In fact, it's kind of the exact opposite of doomsday preparation. We are to be ready so that we can recognize and participate in the world that Christ will usher in. I think we see that much in the next few verses that the lectionary unfortunately leaves out when it stops in verse 44. Here's what it says in the following few verses. Who then is the faithful and wise slave whom his master has put in charge of his household to give the other slaves their allowance of food and the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master will find at work when he arrives. Truly, I tell you, he will put that one in charge of all his possessions. But if that wicked slave says to himself, my master is delayed and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour when he does not know. He will cut him to pieces and put him with the hypocrites where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't know how you weep and gnash teeth after you've been cut to pieces. And arguably that last verse is why they left it out of the lectionary. I understand. But I think this is an important explanation of the world that is to come and what Jesus is trying to prepare his followers for. Who is ready for that world to come? The servant who's taking responsibility for the household is ready for that world to come. The servant who is feeding and caring for others is ready for the world that is to come. That is the person who will be ready to own everything that comes next. They are prepared for the world as it should be and one day will be. They're ready. They're prepared for the world to come. Who's not ready for that world? Those who think they know what they do not know. Ah, he's delayed. Those who take advantage of the opportunity to use and abuse others. Those who waste time being too numb to the world to do it any good at all. Those are the people who are in for a rude awakening, which is a, nice, a much nicer way of saying cut to pieces. Truth is, the gospel doesn't tell us when Jesus will come, but it makes very clear how and why. We cannot know a time and date, but we can know who Jesus is and how Jesus arrives, and Jesus comes in unanticipated ways. We can know that Jesus shows up humbly vulnerably, with love and concern for those around him. We do know who Jesus is, and we do know how Jesus is, and we can prepare accordingly. I've said this before, but I think it bears repeating. I don't personally endorse uh, any theology, and I hope you don't either, that has Jesus coming back as a totally different kind of Messiah than he was the first time. A lot of us were brought up with this idea, and those books didn't help. 
A lot of us were brought up with this, the idea that Jesus, when he was here, yes, he was nice and he was gracious and he did all these kind things. And God was somehow the enforcer off in the clouds. But Jesus was now going to heaven and was going to spend some time with that enforcer God and come back a little more like him. And when Jesus came back, he was going to start a bloody apocalypse, and we were, for some reason, excited to talk about it. I don't believe Christ's nature is going to change. I think that's a bad reading of Scripture, and it's rotten theology. Jesus is not going up to heaven for boot camp to start working out and training so he can kick butt when he comes back. Jesus didn't leave his mother Teresa to come back as Rambo. The same Christ who left is setting things to rights, and that's good news. Jesus is the same, was, is, and always will be. When Christ comes back, Christ, and, and even in the book of Revelation, which is a hard book to read, it's Christ comes back, the lamb comes back covered in his own blood. It's sacrificial love. It's not redemptive violence. Jesus is not going to suddenly stop believing and sacrificing himself and start believing and sacrificing his enemies. Will there be judgment? Absolutely. Judgment is just telling the truth. One day we will all, all of creation will stand in the light of Christ's purity and love and that light is going to show us a lot that we don't want to see in ourselves and in our world. All true love is judgmental in that way. It may be a weird thing to say, but I don't think I've ever felt more judged in my life than when I held my daughter for the first time. And it's not because she got sassy with me and told me what a bad dad I was. That wouldn't come till year seven or eight on a daily basis. But no, it's because I came face to face with something so pure and vulnerable and suddenly I real, began to realize how selfish I was, how unprepared I was. I began to see myself a little more clearly, and it wasn't necessarily the pretty picture. Pure love is judgmental in that way. When you see yourself by it light, you see the blemishes. Hopefully, that judgment has produced better things in my life. God's love and God's judgment are not opposing forces. They are the same. We are called to be prepared for the world that is to come. It is up to us to live today with then in mind. It is up to us to begin preparing ourselves to live in that world, not this world of violence and selfishness and consumerism and everything else. It's up to us to begin preparing ourselves for the world that is to come, to be the first fruits, as Scripture says, of what is going to be here later, but is not fully here yet. Because a world of love, of justice, of sacrifice and humility and peace and reconciliation and forgiveness is a flood that most of us just aren't ready for yet. God, we confess uh, that we are not prepared. We confess that we probably spend a whole lot more time uh, learning how to thrive and survive 
and the broken world that we have, instead of learning how to embody the good world that is to come. God, may we be residents of and builders of your kingdom. May we be those who embody your will here on earth as it is in heaven. May we be the first fruits of the new heaven and the new earth that is to come. May we be agents of your reconciliation and your love. May we give this world a glimpse of the good world that you are building. We do love you. We ask all of this in your name. Amen.